you please remain standing and join me in reciting the Shema, which our Lord Jesus would have recited every day of his life. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Our scripture this morning is from the first chapter of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, beginning in verse 10. Hear now the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, Some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As I reflected this week on this scripture in preparation for this morning, I could only help but laugh at the fact of our topic on division and unity when I was one who grew up with two other brothers in a household of just boys, the idea of the importance of unity without quarreling was kind of a distant afterthought. My mother, as many of you know, was the youngest of six girls, and when she discovered she would be having three boys and only boys, her world, as you would now know it, was turned totally upside down. What was for her normal is was now different and shattered. And for those of you who have boys, you know that boys get in lots of fights and quarrels and break lots of things. Some friends of mine have two sons. It's their first sons they've had. They had two older daughters, and I warned them, and I went over to their house one night. I said, why do you have all this nice stuff in your house? And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, now that you have two sons, all these things will be broken. And little by little, their sons are working their way through the house. But Paul brings up an interesting reality as he starts this passage. Before he even begins, he introduces himself as the one he has ministered to of the Corinthians for so long. Scholars believe he spent 18 months in Corinth and then then later would go on. And it was while in his extended time in Ephesus, probably up to about two years, that he had visitors from the church at Corinth who brought word of these questions, of these quarrels, of these fights, of all these different troubles going on. And so he writes them in this letter. Some actually think there was a preceding letter to this, but this is the letter that has survived and made it into the canon. So it's known to us as 1 Corinthians. And he opens with an introduction of who he was of his time with them, of this personal connection, of his authority in the Lord. And then he starts, interestingly enough, before our passage, with this interesting idea of giving thanks. 
Listen to me now the words of the Lord in verse 4. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he begins on verse 10 to talk about quarrels. Paul introduces himself in the letter, referencing their time together, and then encourages them on who they are and who God is. And I thought it was oh so interesting that God, that Paul begins by focusing us again on God and the Corinthian church as well. Not on what they were doing. And the list is long, as we will discover this summer, the many ways that we, like the Corinthians, get off track and lose sight of what God is doing. And how does Paul decide to correct them? He does not shame them. He does not throw it in their face what they've done wrong. But he begins by reminding them of the relational connection that they have, the authority that he carries in Jesus Christ, and then encourages them. He writes them and us in the midst of all these hardships, in the midst of all these struggles, in the midst of all these mistakes in the way that the church has gone wrong. And what does Paul choose to highlight? But he highlights first and foremost, above all else, not our own abilities, not our own efforts, not what we have done well or even what we have done poorly. Paul decides to highlight one thing and one thing alone, and that is the love and grace of God shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And on this, Paul rests his hope. His hope is found steadfast and firm and is not wavering. Paul is not distracted or concerned or worried that these folks whom he brought the gospel to have now gone astray. And we will find this summer they engage in many things that y'all have heard of. Sexual immorality, sacrificing food to idols, all these different kinds of things that they've gotten off on. And as we dive into this location of Corinth, we will find it is a place for many opportunities to go astray. And how does Paul respond in the midst of this turmoil? He encourages them. He reconnects with them relationally. He doesn't badmouth them or shame them or blame them. He says, God is faithful and we will do very, very well. And then he starts in on what's going on in the church. And the first thing he chooses to to address after this confidence builder and this reminder of this love and mercy and forgiveness and grace in Jesus Christ is their unity, their division. The first thing of all the different things that the church in Corinth gets wrong, Paul chooses to address our division. Paul knows that a group, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A group that, as Danielle and the choir so obviously showed us, if we are singing different tunes, then it will not work, as one of the children observed. I couldn't even understand what they were saying. Even when we are singing good songs, when we are not on the same song, nothing seems to go well. As we look at this reality of the importance of unity, many people often turn quickly to sports teams as they portray to us the depth and the importance of unity in team. 
One of my favorites is the example of the Boston Celtics, who under Red Arbox celebrated 11 championships in 13 years. Many of you sports fans will be familiar of the Sports Illustrated cover photo with Bill Russell, the famed center who was there for most for all of the the 11 championships during the 13 years. He stands there on the cover photo with his hands like this with a championship ring for every finger and I think two on a thumb and a big grin. Many of you will remember during the early 2000s when Kobe and Shaq were winning their championships and the announcers were talking about the idea of a dynasty and Bill Russell at the finals happened to be on the announcer's desk and he laughed and he smirked with a wry smile and he said, three championships? Would we really call that a dynasty? The Celtics are not the only ones to hold such records. Many will think of the UCLA Bruins under the great coach John Wooden. Ten championships in 12 years. And he didn't even get to keep all his players having to reload at least every four years. They ran the same plays and the same systems in shows about, about the operations and about the team. Players would recount that Teammates that didn't even play in the same decade could step on the court and with 20 minutes be running this exact same offense, never having played with one another because they used the same inbounds play, ran the same offense, and used the same system. It was this reality of this rhythm of all the players being on the same page. Did they have talented players? Oh, yes, some of the best in the nation, arguably some of the best to have ever played college basketball. But all will agree it wasn't the individual talent. It was how they played as a team. And then obviously, locally, we have our great basketball champions with Alamo Heights basketball. Coach Bogus started a perennial program. I think when we were there, he celebrated 20 wins in 20 seasons, 20 seasons of 20 win seasons. His students wearing the shirt MTXE, the program Mental Toughness, extra energy, where Coach Bogus would take young kids who were usually shorter and slower than their peers at other schools and train them and manage them into this program and this system where they were all bought in, fully functioning one with another on the team. And as many of you know, we highly outperform our level of talent. This level of talent and this system that's been carried on by our own Andrew Brewer and continued on to this day. I confirm with Gordon this morning, Andrew still uses the MTXE mental toughness extra energy. These students, these kids that aren't supposed to be as athletic or have the ability of their competitors come together as a team, as a unit on the same page. And then who can forget our own San Antonio Spurs? Several championships out of the spotlight, out of the limelight, not popular, not flashy. Tim Duncan, arguably one of the best dominant power forwards of the game. And yet he manages to stay out of the spotlight. Championship after championship after championship, none of this changes. As many of you know, if you're going to play for the Spurs, you're going to be a role player and a team player, and you won't have the amount of looks or the amount of shots or the amount of opportunities you would on another team. Actually, many players that come to our team take a lesser salary and do so greatly with a smile 
because they want a chance to play on a team, to be part of an organization that works together and that dominates. Under Coach Popovich, the Spurs have had a higher winning percentage than any other program in any of the other four major sports during that same era. And it's not just things on the court, it's things off the court. Their team is praised for how we run the front office, for how the ownership works, for how our great GMs do. And we throw off coaches throughout the NBA. Many of y'all are familiar with the coaching tree that they often show of the Spurs. This reach of team reaches deep into all we do as we try and get on the same page. One of the authors I read writes on organizational health, his name is Patrick Lencioni, wrote about the Spurs after the June 2004 championship. And he reflected on the fact that the Spurs reflect team basketball so well. If you'll recall during that championship season, especially in the playoffs, many of the games were not close, were not flashy, were not that exciting. But if you listen carefully, the basketball announcers who had spent their entire lives around the game, celebrated the type of team basketball that the Spurs were playing and said that it harkened back to basketball that was played even 30 years ago in the league. This idea of a dominant superstar who would take the majority of the shots and attempts in a game was not present as the players worked in a system and shared the ball. Lencioni, in his book, The Advantage, writes about the idea of team when he writes on organizational health. And he gives you the idea of two different organizations that I want to share with you. He writes, imagine two organizations. The first is led by a leadership team whose members are open with one another, passionately debate important issues and commit to clear decisions, even if they initially disagree. They call each other out when their behaviors and performance needs correction, and they focus their attention on the collective good of the organization. The second is led by a leadership team whose members are guarded and less than honest with one another. They hold back during difficult conversations, feign commitment, and hesitate to call one another on unproductive behaviors. Often they pursue their own agendas rather than those of the greater organization. And then Lencioni leaves us with this question. What kind of advantage would the first organization have over the second? And how much time and energy would it be worth Investing to make this advantage a reality. Lencioni goes on to highlight that the foundational aspect of putting a team on the same page is trust. He writes, members of a truly cohesive team must trust one another. The kind of trust that is necessary to build a great team is what I call vulnerability-based trust. This is what happens when members get to a point where they are completely comfortable being transparent When they genuinely say and mean things like, I screwed up, I need help, your idea is better than mine, I wish I could do and learn that as well as you do, or one of the most important, I'm sorry. Lencioni highlights that at the heart of vulnerability lies the willingness of people to abandon their pride and their fear, to sacrifice their egos for the collective good of the team. This week, as I prepared for this morning and studied on team, I read a very interesting article about a general, Stan McChrystal, a four-star general who was commander of special forces in Iraq in 2004. 
For those of you all not familiar with the military, oversaw the special forces like our SEAL teams and our Rangers and things of that nature, Green Berets, and worked for the coordination of these teams. When he came into his unit and discovered what was going on, he found that these highly driven, highly capable, highly talented individuals were very focused on the individual teams that they were leading And they succeeded very well on these individual teams. But he found that they were disconnected. They were siloed. They were on their own same pages. And in order to get the community and the organization linked up on the overall goal, he had to do things that actually slowed these individual teams down. He put analysts on the combat teams and combat people with analysts. And he had them begin to share information on an often regular and even daily basis. The effect this had was to slow the individual teams down on their individual goals. But what it did is share the information throughout the entire organization and get everyone on the overall same page. He found that it greatly, even exponentially, multiplied their benefits, their focus, and most of all, their effectiveness. He got them looking where they're on the same page. And in this interview I read with General McChrystal, they said, you're working with the most qualified, most driven, most professional in your kind in the entire world. What are you looking for? What really sets the greatest apart from the rest of the crowd at the top of the top? And he said, I highlight two different things. First of all, I look for humility. If they are going out for themselves and they are on their own mission, this will not work. But if they are humble, they are thinking of the team and they are putting others first. And I need that. I need humility. And the second thing he said is he said, I need teachability. He said, all these people are smart and all these people are strong and all these people are good at what they do, but they don't know everything. And if I can't mold them and teach them, and help them grow and develop, it won't work. He is working with the best of the best in the world in what he does, and he's looking for humility and teachability. As I reflected on our passage for this morning, where Paul says to the Corinthians and to us, it is first and foremost important that you remember who I am and what God has done for us. And he keeps us unified on that. Paul comes to them not as a leader to be tied to his own mission or what he has done for the church at Corinth, but to keep our gaze and the Corinthians' gaze back on Christ. Paul is not here to raise his own mission. He is here to lift up the person of Jesus. We know from the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us, I must be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. Do you ever notice the words that our leader and pastor, David McNitsky, uses as he introduces every sermon he does? When he begins to invite us into the Shema, he invites us by saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul is coming to us with the same idea and the same sentiment and the same heart as our humble leader, David, is. They're coming to say, follow me as I follow Christ. 
Paul writes to the Corinthians not to address all the ways they have gone wrong, but to start in the most important place of all, to remind them and us of the face of God, the hope that rests in him alone, and to come together in following Jesus. As we follow Paul and the Corinthians through this summer, I encourage you not to be afraid of the new things that the scripture will shine in the parts of our lives that are dark and need the light of Christ. To not be concerned at the ways that we have gone astray, but to be encouraged that the love of God overcomes all. And as a people unified behind that love of Christ, we are capable of anything. As we turn in this church year to follow David more and more and come under his mission of making disciples through our core values of stars, I encourage you to remember this admonition from Paul. We are not divided by Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but we are all unified in Christ as his beloved children. Amen.